I'm Kay Palmore. Welcome to the Leadership Student Podcast here at RSA 2023. I'm joined today by uh, some fantastic guests. We're gonna tackle the subject of cultivating diverse leaders in the cybersecurity industry. But first, I wanna welcome my guests, Julian Waits, Larry Whiteside Jr. and Sharon Burgess uh, to the Leadership Student Podcast and just have a real good conversation around what we need to be doing better in the cybersecurity industry in terms of identifying cultivating and bringing diverse leaders to the table. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for, having for having us. Awesome. So for our viewers who may or may not know uh, your backgrounds, I want to give some time for you guys to introduce yourselves. So why don't we start with you, Julian? Well, thank you, MK. So again, Julian Waits is my name. Uh, I've been in the industry now, my God, over 30 years. Started as an IT person and over time developed a passion for protecting things which led to cybersecurity. And that did let, didn't lead itself to a career of being a serial entrepreneur, starting companies to try and solve problems for corporations and entities around, you know, people want to do bad things on your network, steal your money or mess up your reputation, or even worse. And, uh, and now I like spending my time doing exactly what we're doing now, working with organizations like Cyversity to help promote, you know, everybody into the field of cybersecurity, but especially those people who are less likely to be aware of the benefits and, the, and what they can provide to others and to themselves. Awesome. Uh, Larry. Thank you. Uh, so Larry Whiteside Jr., uh, I am the current co-founder and president of Cyversity. Uh, I've been in this industry interesting. You said over 30 years, and I had to sort of do the math, and it's been almost 30 years for me, and it's, yep. it's a little amazing to uh, think about that. but. For me, it was interesting. I sort of fell into the career. I thought I was going to be a coder. I went to school and got a computer science degree and, and thought I was going to code forever. But school coding and real life coding are two different things. So uh, I ended up joining the military. The military sort of pushed me into this field that was information security and information warfare. And because I like to break things, right, I just sort of be fell into it and started to love it. But I became a protector of breaking things. So um, it's been an interesting journey. I've been a CISO for a long time, since the early 2000s of a lot of different organizations and a lot of different verticals. Um, and it's just been, that was what I thought I loved the most. But then when we decided to start this organization, which was ICMCP, that became Cyversity, I realized that my passion really lies in helping uh, others who don't have opportunity. I realized that cy uh, cybersecurity as an industry became a socioeconomic impactor for me and my family for generations because my children would never know the life that I led and grew up with because of what cybersecurity did for me as a field. So my passion for it has grown because now I'm trying to help more people that look like me and come from backgrounds like me get into it. Excellent, Sharon. Yeah, so Sharon Burgess. Um, I'm a global CISO at BCD Travel also work with Cyversity. You know, it's, it's been interesting. I've been in this industry almost 20 years. Um, definitely didn't think that that would be my path. Um, you know, I'm, I represent perhaps the new generation of security professionals where they didn't have computer science degrees. And how those skills translate back into the industry I think is so significant and important. You know, background I started in audit and compliance, so I always throw out SAS 70, that's an old one, and if you know anything about SAS 70, you know, jumped in there and really kind of fell in love with the topic and the dynamicism of cybersecurity, of information security, data protection. Um, academically, however, my focus was more on people, international relations, culture, socioeconomic kind of issues, and I think that directly translates into this field as well. You know, we, as, as technologists, as professionals, we try to implement all this really cool technology, but people beat it every day. Yeah. And so the more you know about people and their motivations and how they move in the security space, I think it enables us to have different kinds of protections. And so I'm really excited about what we're doing to open our arms more to non-traditional security professionals yeah. and seeing the parallel, the skills that they have in other industries and saying, yes, security can be for you. Let's see how we can translate those skills over. So uh, RSA 2023, the RSA conference typically um, billed as the largest cybersecurity conference in the world annually. Conference has been around for a number of years and I think that from what I know of the founding of Cyversity, maybe it was attendance at conferences like RSA that actually uh, were the 
momentum or origin story for Cyversity itself. So we got two of the founders here uh, at the table. Talk to us a little bit about what your mindset was. You've been in the industry now a number of years. What your mindset was around forming an organization that would actually help bring more women and people of color to the table in Cyversity. So I'll jump on this because the interesting thing that a lot of people don't know is Julian was the connective tissue between the other co-founders mm -hmm. that were trying to solve this problem. We were all attending conferences just like RSA and realizing that we were not seeing enough people to look like us. Whether it was us being on stage and looking in the audience or us being on stage and looking down at the other panelists. And we're like, well, where is the other person that looks like me? Where are the women? Why are we not seeing that? So we individually started going down this path of and reaching out to our mentors and, and people that we knew, hey, this is a problem, hey, this is a problem, what can we do? Let, let's well, name the founders too. So, so yeah, so, so Devin Bryant, uh, um, who is now the CIO at Carnival, uh, Carlos Edwards, um, Eric Permenter, uh, are the other three founders of the organization. And we were all having these conversations about, individually, separately, without knowing the others were thinking the same thing, and we all happened to have this connective tissue with Julian. Mm -hmm. And each of us went to Julian, and he basically said, hey, you need to, and he literally pointed Devin and I to each other, and said, you guys need to go meet and talk to each other, because y'all have both come to me about the exact same thing. And mm -hmm. so it was, and so, and I hadn't yet to meet Devin at that point. Yeah, you hadn't met him at that Right, and so literally he had that, Devin and I ended up meeting in the Atlanta airport on our way to do a panel together in North Florida. I remember that. And so we ended up meeting in the airport, talking about it, the next morning, sat down, talked over breakfast, and basically that was the formation of the organization. Outstanding. Yeah, but the, the, the genesis was at RSA. Uh, one of the other things about my past is I'm also a, a former Baptist minister, and that's a whole long story in and of itself. <laughs> so uh, Corey Thomas, who is currently the CEO of Rapid7, wasn't quite the CEO yet. And a group of us met in the lobby at the St. Regis Hotel, where I said I wanted us to get, to, I said, I know everybody's busy, but we can get together whole hands and we're gonna say a prayer. And then you can go do your thing. And that was the day I met Devin. Mm -hmm. So we all stood there, we said a prayer, there was probably like nine to 11 of us. And we all said, not because of the reason that, just because there wasn't diverse enough, but what, what an opportunity for everybody if they really understood what, what you could do here. And so then Devin literally flew to Tampa and said, you, you need to help me get this thing started. And that's when I connected everybody together. Because I said, I don't do anything. I can write a check, right? And I can right. introduce you guys. Do you guys need to make this happen? And that's how, that's how ICMCP originally came into being. Yeah. So ICMCP started in 2014. Yep. Uh, the organization went through a little bit of a rebranding back in 2020. 2020. Yep. Uh, now called Cyversity, which it's hopefully folks lo love the name. It's a play on a couple of things. It is. It is. Diversity, the the instructional aspect in terms of universities and instruction, uh, and cybersecurity, of course. So bringing all those terms together. Um, certainly, one of the things that I witness in this industry for as long as I've been exposed to it is the absence of a significant amount of women and people of color in positions just within the industry. I mean, we're talking everything from ground level throughout senior leadership positions. Uh, Sharon, you've had a super interesting career track up to this point. We had a conversation the other day about where you got your start in the industry. Can you talk a little bit about what brought you to the table in terms of IT, but then matriculating up uh, up the line and then eventually becoming a sitting CISO. And I ask that because you've kind of lived the, the track that we sort of espouse to members of Cyversity, like you can do this. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? Yeah, sure, you know, as I mentioned, I started off um, in audit and compliance. I had done some work in pharmaceutical manufacturing prior, um, long and very weird academic background that led me to <laughs> getting into that, um, but started in audit and compliance. And it just so happened that the audit and compliance function was in a security department. And at that time, you know, many of you all know as practitioners, security was a dumping ground for a lot of weird stuff. Exactly. At one point, right? And so that's into, that's where I started. And, you know, and, and earlier in my career, you know, I got this really kind of odd advice, which was, well, you need to know everything that the IT person knows in order to be successful in this. And so I spent the early part of my career kind of 
being an imposter. I was trying to be like everybody else mm -hmm. and really denying the kinds of skills that I brought to the table that were unique. And I think once I realized more that, okay, I, I don't want to wait 20 years to get this IT experience to be able to right. you know, leverage what it is that I can do and start to understand my own gifts and talents, was I able to kind of climb that ladder and, and move forward. And one of the things that I'm very good at is I'm strategic and I can build programs. And so, and programs that execute. Right. And so the ability to do that and tapping into that Interestingly enough, are prime skills for leadership, right? So right. you can talk prime to different people. You can talk to them. You can convince them. You can influence them. You can talk about the values and what's really important. Cast big pictures. Cast visions of what things can be and where you can see. Uh, and take people to places that they've never been. Was my personal gift. And so being able to do that has allowed me to, you know, kind of climb that ladder, have that conversation about. Um, hey, we want, we need somebody to do this. Raising my hand, I think I always tell people volunteering. If somebody says, "Hey, we need someone," it's me. I'll do it and move those things forward. And then, e even if you're knowledgeable about it or not knowledgeable, yeah. do you feel like you're going to learn when you? Absolutely, and I think this is another problem. You know, especially with women, we have this conversation that you know women tend to not go after opportunities if they don't meet a hundred percent of the criteria, right. right? Whereas typically we see men who are like. Hey, I need 30%, I'm right, gonna right, give it a right, go, right? Right. Fake right. so, it until you make it. Fake it until right. you make it. And I think as women, we should definitely give that a try more and just say, well, I don't know. I know these things. I know 50% of it, mm -hmm. but I'll learn the You'll other learn 50%. The rest. Right. And so I think all of those kinds of kind of attributes about how I learned and how I grew and just again understanding the talent that I have has enabled me to do more and to grow in my career. Outstanding. So, so important. We've been talking in this industry for as long as I've been in it. One of the things that attracted me to Cyversity was literally I was a senior leader in the government. There was a conference that was held out here on the West Coast. Mm -hmm. uh, someone brought the conference to my attention. I showed up and I'm like, wow, there's all these other black and brown practitioners and women and, and folks who uh, look like me and share similar backgrounds and have an interest in thriving in this industry. And I bring that up because the, the, the point I'm trying to make is we've been talking for many years about <coughs> trying to impact change in the cybersecurity and technology industry, but it's really hard. Why do you think the problem's so hard, Julian? I think uh, there's three primary reasons for that in terms of why it's so hard to have more diversity in this industry. And the first issue is uncommon, but it's scarcity. It's awareness. You know. Like Sharon said, and I think this is true for most people in our generation, I didn't start my career thinking I was going to be a cybersecurity person. Right. When I started my career, <laughs> I was looking for a great way to make the ends meet, and IT turned out to be a thing that I could do. And like yeah. you, yeah. I had a special set of skill sets around being able to com communicate with people that allowed me to take those technical skills and bring them into something that could become more of a culture. So. And then over time, security developed and I fell into it, but it wasn't like something I decided. And I think most people have that issue where they're just not aware that this can be an opportunity to right. them. Two is then becomes cultural bias. I don't think a lot of people, namely white people, go to church, I mean, no, not church, but to work every day thinking, I'm gonna hold a woman or you know, a white guy or hold somebody of color back. But there is this thing where we all as humans gravitate to what is the same in us, what makes us feel comfortable, mm -hmm. is the same thing that made us say years ago, why aren't they more like us? Because we were uncomfortable. So people choose to, to pick and work with people that look like them because they're unconsciously just going through what's familiar. And then the third thing I think is when people are aware of cybersecurity, all of a sudden it becomes this big mythical cloud <laughs> that seems so difficult to penetrate or get involved yeah. with. When, when you take what Sharon just said, I can talk, I can communicate, I can understand policies and procedures, and I can help people you know, systematically do these things. Now, none of that required a high degree of technical knowledge. Mm -hmm. What it hires is that it requires you to be inquisitive, to have an understanding of the language, and communicate. Yeah. That's all it took for Sharon to become a cyber professional. So, helping people take down that barrier of, this is so big and so difficult, and making it something that comes in their lives every day. I never thought I would ever be a cyber practitioner. 
and now it's all hat to me. It's just like, you know, when I went to Canada, they don't, with the high school, they don't do this much anymore. They were trade schools. There were some people who just weren't designed to go to college, or that wasn't their thing. And so they'd learn how to be a plumber. They'd learn how to be, you know, whatever it is, a car mechanic. Cyber's no different. No. It's basically like a trade. It, like you, I don't have a technical degree. I was a religion major and a jazz performance minor. So. I, I think wow. if we were to trace the backgrounds of many cybersecurity professionals that we would find sort of non-traditional paths to the field. I'm sorry, you were going to say something? Yeah, I just want to piggyback on what Julian mentioned. I think the other kind of barrier is that as an industry, we've been very specific about or even exclusive about what it means to be a security or a competent 100%. security professional. Yeah. You know, and I, my quintessential example is when you look at the job descriptions for an entry level position, entry level, you're asking for a CISSP. That doesn't even make sense. Right. Right? And so I think that there's a more systemic issue that um, I think practitioners have gotten out of touch of what it means to, to be in the place where somebody poured into them and developed them. Right. I think there's that. I think that there's also a gap in terms of aligning the kinds of skills that they need for roles and being able to see it in a non-traditional way. Right. So I'll give you another great example. You know, we have a number of project managers on, on our team and I will recruit for somebody who is super organized and I met a young lady who was a master couponer. I was like, I need to talk to you because you wow. can organize some things. Right. You know how to deal with you know, the finances of it all. You might be great to be a project manager in an organization. Yeah. So thinking about these things in a, in a non-traditional way, not just looking for people who have computer science degrees as if they're the only ones that yeah. would possibly be competent here, I think there's that, that shift in the industry that is necessary as well to relieve some of those barriers. So and I, I want to pull on a couple of threads to what both of them have said. So I'm going to back up all the way to his awareness right. component, right? So, so early on, right, when we started this journey, one of the things I would do is I would go into churches in my community and talk about cyber safety, yeah. right? And I did that because I wanted to talk to parents. I had young children at the time and I mm -hmm. wanted parents to understand as your kids go online the things you can do. But my part of my intent was to see that they have an awareness of the field of cybersecurity and how do they define success for their children. And there was a humongous lack of any aspect of understanding of the field of cybersecurity. They knew technology, but when they defined success for their children, it was lawyer, doctor, right? The age old industries that right. people think of that has eight, 10 years of education after high school. And when I would bring up, well, cybersecurity, well, is it that just IT, right? Is it that that's just IT, you just work with computers. And to this day, right, almost 30 years in the field, I have family members who literally say, you work with computers, right, Larry? I have this problem. I'm like, I'm still in, I'm, I, I'm IT help desk, help yeah. desk right? I am so, IT help desk We're, we're all in our families. But that's that lack of awareness yeah. in these underserved communities about what this field is and what it can be and the social economic impact it can have on a family's life yeah. Yeah. for generations, right? The other piece is what Sharon talked about, about this misnomer about cyber. If you think about the media and how they, they position cyber, it is somebody in a hoodie, at a computer, right, in this dark room, just going. So people, when they're coming code. to the writing yeah. code, they yeah. come to this industry, they think, I'm not technical. I, can't. I literally had my son Tell me, he's, he graduated with a political science degree, right? His twin sister graduated with a cyber degree. He says, I said, he's looking for a job. He wants to get out of teaching, he's teaching. I said, well, do you want to go on the side? Oh, dad, I'm not technical. I don't, I don't really, and I'm like, so there's this, even my son, right? Yeah. There's this misunderstanding of what the breadth of cyber is. Yeah. You don't have to be, being technical, there's nothing wrong with it. There's yes, we do that. need and it's needed. that, yep, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. But that's one lane. Right. We've got a huge highway of skills that yeah. can be used in cyber, right? That can you can come into this field, but everybody thinks and starts talking about this one lane, which is I've got to get technical ability. I need to learn how to code. I need to learn. I need to learn command line scripting. I need to learn shell. I need, and there's so much more. And we've got to do 
more to, to ensure we're pushing the awareness around the other things in cyber. Cybersecurity kind of has a branding issue, right? Absolutely. Folks really external to the industry don't really understand what it is. Correct. How early can you get to folks though and explain to them what cyber is? Are we talking high school, college? Elementary. What's yeah. the so, what's the ideal target age? Uh, maybe let me speak to that a moment. Yeah. You know, one of the things that's super interesting is that young women, young girls get discouraged from STEM fields in middle school. So they get told math is too hard and that they should be doing some something else, yeah. right? right? And so we have to start Something Even not early, math. Yeah, yeah, something not math, and something that's not coding. Yeah. You know, that's that's one of the things that you know. I have a I have a middle schooler, and she has She's started now. She is brilliant, brilliant, by the way. She will be. She'll be a security <laughs> person when she already is. She doesn't know it. Um, but you know, they start them in well coding. It's coding. You need to know that, and there's a lot of value in it. Yeah. But we don't teach these other kinds of you know kids. You, they do encryption every day in school when they write a note with the little stars and then they send them a little key on how to decrypt the message that they sent in class. Mm -hmm. It's encryption, let's talk about that. So let's uh, parallel that to this is cybersecurity, this is what this means. But for sure we need to start to address and get them uh, normalized and start to share the opportunities with them as early, I would say, as, um, as middle school or else we will lose them and we won't see that pipeline grow you know, when we're looking for, well, where are the, where are the young women, where are the, the, the underrepresented mm -hmm. communities? Well, they got discouraged 10 years ago, you're too right. late. Right. So that's why it becomes so significant. And that early, I would say, at least middle school, is some place where we should be starting. I'll okay. give a real world example. So my daughter, who graduated with a cyber degree, in fifth grade, she was being told that she shouldn't focus heavily on math because she wasn't doing well. And she was told, it's, it's okay, you're a girl. You're, and I was like, no, that's not okay. Because she wasn't memorizing, right, the formulas that the teachers taught. And so I took, she came home, she wasn't doing well in it, so I signed up for Khan Academy. and said, hey, let's, let's figure out how to solve the problem, right? Because the reality is, cybersecurity is about problem solving. Right? It's about curiosity, and it's about finding out how to solve a problem, right? So I work with her to solve the problem. So she started getting a new concept of how to solve the problem, and thinking outside the narrow box that she was given by the professor, right, or math teacher, right, fifth grade, to do it. She was going back and she was still getting marked wrong. She said, Dad, I'm like, she's coming back with you. She's I'm like, wait, it's, but it's right. You showed your work, right, you, you got to the problem. It's that lack of problem solving skills that needs to, we need to ensure that that's being pushed at this young fourth and fifth grade age, especially in young girls. Because I would go back and argue with the professor when, when that math teacher wouldn't agree with me, I went to the principal. And it took her through middle school and then by her sophomore year, math came to her, it just clicked. Right. And she was straight A's in all of her math because she started to get it. But she had that constant affirmation and that constant push of, about, listen, don't worry about memorization, figure out how to solve the problem. And that's what helped her through college and what helped her get her cyber degree. So we've got to start at that age to focus on problem solving. Okay. So uh, I agree with that. Through Rapid7 in the city of Tampa where I live, I'm involved with a program called CEOs in Schools. And the only thing I would say is I actually start with elementary school. Mm -hmm. As soon as you can hold the phone and use social media, mm -hmm. you need an education. Ding, 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 ding. And guess what? That's first, second grade, my kids even when I think about it, they had computers before they were in elementary school, yeah. right? Yep. And they have these phones with social media, as you got, I'm sure you guys have seen it. There's tons of legislation, now at a state level, where states are starting to acquire that kids are a certain age and their parents sign up before they can even use social media. And now they're thinking about making a federal mandate. Yeah. And the reason is, is because, you know, when you look at the typical attacker, to your point about how we hire people in cyber, yeah. the attackers don't have college degrees. Right. <laughs> they don't have all of this stuff but they'll probably make more money than all of us together right. <laughs> before it's all over right. with. And we create these hurdles yeah. for ourselves Absolutely. that we say, unless you have this, you have that. To your point, none of us at this table probably would have ever gotten into cyber if we had the rules about what it means to get a cyber job right. Right. today that, that, they have, that they had them back when we started, right? right. right. And so starting with the students and more importantly, the educators. The Absolutely. biggest problem I have when I go into schools and I'm working with kids is the teachers are, are just as, and I'm using ignorant here as, a, as the truest sense of the word, 
unknowledgeable yeah. about cyber as the kids are. And so you kind of have the blind leading the blind. Yeah. That's so awareness starts early because then it opens the door for, for them. Like I go to a typical elementary school in an in a underserved community. What do you want to be? Football player, football player. basketball player, <laughs> musician, uh, <laughs> all of those things. But nobody ever says it. There's, there's not even any doctors and lawyers. It's all sports or entertainment, 100%. And then I'll go, what if I told you if you can bring so much economic value, not to your family, but everybody around you by choosing a career in cyber, and all of a sudden they peak up and they want to talk about it. Yeah. And then I give simple examples around credit card theft. Yeah. I love to tell them the story about the time I was in Malta and I, I, I was living in a part of my life where I was bragging about the fact that I had no debt. And I just walked around with cash or a debit card. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden I'm in Malta, the, uh, the, the, the Target thing happens. Yeah. Wells Fargo sees that, hey, Julian just bought a television in Los Angeles and you know, got some cash out of a machine, Malta at the exact same time. There's a little problem with that. Hey Julian, we just turned off your, your debit card because somebody's got the number, there's some fraud going on here, and uh, we're gonna mail you a new card. Well, I'm gonna be in Malta for another three weeks. Uh, I need you to mail the card to Malta. No, we're gonna mail it to your home address. I had to call my close friend and borrow like $10,000. I did, and, but it's a practical example about that cyber theft, yeah. right? And so if you can bring it down to something that the kids and the teachers understand, all of a sudden it opens the doors for for being those problem solvers, for being able to go, gee, I never thought about doing something like that. And I, I also want to add that I don't think we talk about cyber being cool. Like, I love what I do. Yeah. I love what yeah. I do. Yeah. Can you tell that uh, Larry's dressed like yeah. this is, this is <laughs> the coolest thing he's ever done? But that's the kind of thing, like, I think people, you know, you know, kind of mentioning the hacker with the hoodie and that's, you yeah. know, I mean, it's okay to have your own personality, to enjoy yeah. what you do, to bring yourself to your profession. And we don't talk about that enough. Right. We don't say that, yeah, hey, I'm a, I'm a CISO. This is what I get to do. This is what I did today. This was amazing. And they're like, what you did? You know, when you're talking to little kids, like, what, you're doing this stuff? This is amazing. So I think we're losing, as professionals too, we're losing the zest for our yeah. profession. And we're not conveying that. So it doesn't look fun. It's fun. We, we, get, we get mired, I think, in the tyranny of the now, which is yeah. answering the mail on all the technology right. things that we deal with That's on exactly a daily right. basis. So um, the brand for this podcast is around the subject of leadership. If you look at any of the data in the industry, not only is it um, a poor indication in terms of the presence of women and people of color uh, at lower levels in the industry, it really gets to be stark when you start to look at the director plus levels within the industry. Right. Less than 2%, which um, is poor. How do we affect change in that regard? It's not just about getting folks into the industry because we, we can work uh, collectively as a group to get as many people as we can into those um, entry-level positions, but that does not guarantee that they're going to be able to matriculate up and actually become leaders in the industry. What kind of barriers or challenges are we seeing there? So uh, I'll go. So, so here's the reality. So number one, those who are in leadership roles, right, those of us who have leadership roles have got even more work to do to ensure <laughs> that we are grabbing and pulling people up. It's a conversation I have on a regular basis with many friends of mine who are CISOs or C-level executives in this industry. We, like there's a call to action for us right. to not just sit and talk and pontificate about the problem, but consistently reach down and create and give opportunity to others to come up. Because part of the problem is there's no real training for you know being a CISO, there's no exact path of how you get to the CISO role, right? And so you can apply for the CISO role if you're a diverse person, but to what he started earlier, these unconscious bias components, when you look at who's hiring, whether it's the CIO, whether it's the chief risk officer, whether it's the CEO of organizations, it gets even to be less diverse. So when they are hiring and they're looking to bring someone into that role, it's far easier for them to fall to those unconscious biases and pick the person that they are most comfortable and familiar with based on that. So with that, we have to be pulling up 
pulling them up. And when we, when we get a C-level role, we need to be creating our succession plan already. Right. And creating that succession plan is bringing people up who look like us and have backgrounds like us to help them get into the role. So as we move sideways, somebody else can step into these roles that looks like us. And that's how we're gonna get some of the growth. The other part of the growth is we really have to go to these people who don't look like us that are in these hiring roles to hire CISOs and, and basically tell them it's time for you to lean forward and move out of the way. Well, so where I was gonna go, and I agree with you completely. When I started my career in IT, and actually this is when you and I met at the, at the West Coast event, Joe Sullivan, who you know, is certainly going through his trials right yeah. now, was in the room that day. And it was a young uh, gentleman of African descent in the room, I wanted to make sure I said it the right way, <laughs> who raised his hands and says, hey, I can't find any black mentors here in the Bay Area. And I looked at him and I went, well, who said your mentor had to be black? Because when I started my career, there were no black people in IT. They were all white. And so we need to talk to others in these hiring roles, not just as CISOs, but at every corporate level, to understand that they need to be allies. One report after another, whether it's Harvard, Yale, or others, who've all done studies on business and diversity, has always proven diverse teams always outthink and do better work and are more productive yeah. than teams that are homogeneous. And so it's part of our goal and part of my ministry, since it's no longer preaching the gospel of Jesus every day, part of my ministry is that gospel, which is I need your help. Right. If we're going to change this, you're the ones who have the jobs, you're the ones with the recs, and unless you decide to change and recognize the problem, we'll never solve it because there's only so many people I can move on the side for. No, no, by myself. that's 100% yeah. true. But, and so his point is, if, if you think back to every aspect of any type of social issue in history, women's voting, right, uh, civil rights, whatever it is, it's never just the impacted community that stands up that solves the problem. They can't, yeah, right? not by they, themselves. They can't, not yeah. by themselves. So they have to have allyship of others also recognizing the problem and standing up, right? And so I, I use this gentleman's name on a regular basis, Joey Johnson. Joey Johnson may be one of the best allies that I've ever seen. And I use him as the example because he models it. He not, only, he not only does it socially, but he actually does it in his practice within his team. If you go look at the makeup of his team, he is constantly looking for and bringing in diverse people because he recognizes the value of it, but he also recognizes the challenge in front of us as an industry, yeah. right? But we need more Joey Johnsons. We need more people who are not directly impacted to recognize by standing up and leaning forward it's not just going to help you and your organization, it's going to help the industry as a whole because cyber, we're falling behind from, right, from a just practitioner standpoint of fighting the good fight. The threat actors, they don't care if you're black, white, purple, green, male, female, they don't care. And they're getting smarter, faster on a regular basis because they don't care. But we have still continued to deal with this struggle of bringing diversity to the table and ensuring that we are creating a diverse, a more diverse workforce. So until we really realize that everybody recognizes the problem and we get those allies to stand up more strongly and more forcefully and more verbally and actually put their money where their mouth is, open up the wrecks and start looking outside the norm of where they've been looking, we're going to continue to fall behind in this race. Well. If you believe the numbers, where there are theoretically more than three million openings for cyber or cyber-related personnel right now in the world, with a million of those being in the United States, it really is a numbers game. Obviously, for some reason, we're saturated with white guys, and there's still not enough of them. So let's open up the party to everyone yeah. so we can fight this fight more adequately. So, you had something to say? Yeah, I think maybe there's two things. And I always like to look at kind of at the core of the problem and some of the systems and then what are some of the things yeah. that can be affected. You know, I think one thing at the very core of it is that businesses need to understand how quickly things are changing. Yeah. You know, COVID really shared a lot of things. You know, now that my, my child can think about um, becoming a social influencer and making far more money than any of us ever imagined. <laughs> right. And so these ideas, these the norms for these true. companies that have had 100 year standings and they've done it the same way all the time, many of them are folding because they're not willing to evolve. 
And part of that evolution means understanding that you need different thinkers. Right. People who can challenge your existing norms and say, hey, let's look at, let's consider this other, this other perspective. When you have a room full of the same thinkers, you can have similar outcomes and you can't be as dynamic as you need to. So I think as companies think about, you know, it's not just so much, I think I agree with Julianne and with Larry, but the idea here is companies who are opening their arms to diversity are ones that are preparing for the future. And if companies are not doing that, you know, we'll I think they're, they're, in a, they're gonna have a problem. I think the other part of that is when we think about more of uh, some of the some of the issues and what we uh, some of getting uh, people into the roles, we still find fundamentally that the hiring or even the the weeding out of candidates is being done by recruiters who have no concept of what a security professional should right, look right. like yep. and what competency is. So the recruiters are the first ones to say, this person is or isn't qualified, right. and they're the ones that share that to the hiring manager. One of the things that we're looking at in Cyversity from a strategic standpoint is, well, how do we educate the recruiters better so that they know here are the kinds of skills, this is what this should look like. It's not an entry level with CISSP, here's the kinds of skills that are important. Now right. the NICE framework has done a lot of that to map some of the jobs and the roles, but I think that there's that first entry with those recruiters who need to know how to recruit and identify security talent and bring them forward. So true. So I, I want to get um, all fantastic comments, I want to get focused back on the leadership leadership aspect though in terms of, say that there, there are folks that look like us that are in the industry, that you've got these mid-level positions, yeah. you've got some experience under your belt, we're still seeing that people are not being given the opportunity to lead, to take over teams, take over new and challenging assignments, which then oftentimes lead to higher responsibilities. Absolutely. Um, like why why are we why is that why is that such a such a challenge? So even those of us that get to the table, get in the industry, are not being given what we what might be considered a fair opportunity to to, to lead and develop as well, professionals. And so so let's also own that there's some generational aspects of expectation that are happening in this newer generation okay. that is unrealistic. Right? I'm having conversations with people who are five years into you know, cyber and saying, you know, so I don't understand why they're not making me a director or a VP. Right? Mm -hmm. If you think about our paths, mm -hmm. right, we didn't come in and you know in four years jump into this role. Right? Right. It took time for us proving ourselves in roles, taking on more responsibility, Right, and doing a lot of things, sometimes outside of our direct line of responsibility, to demonstrate that we had the capability to move to that next level. And a lot of times right now, what I'm hearing in the conversation that I'm having with people that are in you know, junior or mid-level roles is they think, okay, I did my job, so now I should be promoted to the next thing. And that's not sort of how not it realistic, works. Right. right? It is becoming a leader is not just doing your job every day. Right, and so I don't think there's a lot of training that is it, that they are going through or even looking for, right, as it relates to leadership and understanding how to become a leader. They just think if I if I do my 40 hours, I do what I was told to do, right, then the next thing is I'm automatically going right. to get to the next promotions phase. on the right. on the table. Right, and you being former military, it didn't work like that in the military. You don't just automatically make your next rank just because. Mm -hmm. However you still can get a field commission. So I agree with everything you just said, but it doesn't change the, the original premise that we talked about with people coming into the industry, dealing with unconscious bias and these other issues. There is still, in many organizations, this theoretical, or it's not so theoretical, this glass ceiling that diverse people can't seem to get above. And I still think that goes back to the conscious thinking that these organizations have about what it means to have leaders and to develop the leaders. There's very few born leaders. There are lots of people who are born with leadership potential. But leaders are made, they're not just born. You, so, you jumped ahead on a question that I asked all my guests on the leadership student, but go ahead. <laughs> ah, sorry. Continue diving right in. But the, the point is, is organizations themselves have to be willing to make the investment in this talent. Now, does that take away from what Larry just said? You know, what, I don't know what generation they are now, X, Y, yeah, Z, I don't know which one it is. <laughs> but 
the whole point is, is there's got to be some level of aggression. You can't be afraid of your own shadow and expect to be given a higher role. Nobody's just going to tap you on the shoulder one day and go, oh, I like <laughs> right. you so much and you got the new job. So you got to be willing and, and eager to do it. But at the same time, you also need to push on those ceilings that exist when you see that they're there. Yeah. yeah. I think in this industry still at these levels, kind of directors and above, you know, part of it is competency, right? right? Can you do the job? Do you have, you know, blah, blah, blah. The other part of it is very relational. This industry is still very relational. Mm -hmm. Do you know somebody who knows you who knows that you're competent, right? right? And so I think that there's still more opportunities for um, the networking, for the allyship and the diversity to come together more um, that I think will make a difference in the future. And then of course, you know, other organizations like Cybersity to help advocate and change perspective and you know, share the fact that, hey, here's a group of, of leaders absolutely very, very confident and, and competent in what they're doing. Um, and I think that that's going to make a difference as well. So, so I, I want to pull on that relational piece. And, and it's, I think that's so important because a lot of people don't realize that cybersecurity is a community. Like, it is a community. Yeah. We know, we, people walking by, we walk around, we, we've known people for years mm -hmm. that we, and sometimes it's this, just that we see at these conferences. Exactly. But we've known people for years, and so as in part of my teaching, when I'm talking to people who are looking for that next role, whether it's a CISO, whether it's a director, whatever, I'm like, well, when you're going to look at a company that you want to interview for because they've got an open role, do you just go apply? And then cross your fingers and hope, right? Or do you create some connective tissue with the people in that organization, right? Do you go and look, hey, I know Larry. Larry's connected to this person that's uh, at this company that's hiring. Hey, Larry, what do you know about them? Hey, can you share some insights, right? That, that whole relational piece, we are a relationship-based industry. And a lot of times there are a lot of people like us that don't want to, cre they, we create communities within our community, but we won't create it outside of our community. And, and we've got to do a much better job of creating a bigger community that doesn't just look like us. Yes, it's great to have a community that looks like you of people that come from your background that you can trust and, and share openly with, but you must also be relational and open with these other people who can bring it, because when you create those, those are where some of those opportunities are going to come together. I, I think we, um, we oftentimes don't emphasize enough the need to network and expose yeah. yourself to folks across the domains within yeah. the industry so that you can have those individual touch points at the different places when maybe a next opportunity is available to you, but also so that folks can reach out to you. I mean, we, we, we have to get away from this idea of always thinking, what can I get out of exactly. this? Right. Because exactly. folks right. are going to come to you and you need to at some point be ready to offer a helping hand, point someone in the right direction or, uh, or make an opportunity available to them. So uh, as I indicated, Julian jumped ahead, which he's apt to do. Um, one of the questions I ask all my guests, because I, I, I'm genuinely interested in the leadership journey of the people that I interview. Do you believe leaders are born or made? Sharon. Ooh, you got to start with me. Um, can I go in the middle? <laughs> you can give whatever answer you believe is, yeah. a, is an answer I'm to gonna, the question. I'm going to sit in the middle of that. I mean, I think that there's, I'll just use, I'll just use myself, right? As a child, they'd say, Sharon, you're so bossy. <laughs> Sharon, you're bossy. Shocking. And you talk a lot. <laughs> and you know, and a lot of times kids get that, like, oh, she talks too much. I cannot well, imagine maybe she saying has that to you. <laughs> <laughs> so shocked. <laughs> so at a very young age, I was very clear about, well, no, this isn't the, you know, right. do it this way. We're going to go this way, you know, so. You were going to be heard. I was going to be heard and usually had pretty solid <laughs> ideas, you know. And so I think there, there are some, some characteristics that make, you know, yeah. make good leaders very definitive about what it is that they see and want to do. And, you know, sometimes along your leadership journey, and so is it, are they made, you get, you know, you have this very strong perspective and then you get, you know, punched in the eye along the way, right? right? Because people are like, well, your way's not the only way, right? And so, you know, I think that there is a forging that happens as you, as you develop in your leadership. You learn more about, it's not so much, and this is, I always have this conversation with my leaders, the difference between being a leader and being a manager. Mm -hmm. Like there's at some point where you can just get stuff done, you can get people to do things, that's good management. Yeah. But leadership is more about 
how do you influence people? How do you hear them? How do, are you listening? And how, so I think those are skills that you learn later on. So I'd say that there's some, you know, they're built as well. But yeah. Larry. Yeah, so so I, I'm gonna say they're built. I mean, it, to your point, I, there is some aspect where some are likely born, like from day one coming out of the womb, like it's just, that's who they are and that's who they've always been. But to, to that, that point of forged is what, why I say they're built, because if I think about my journey, right, as a child, I wasn't really a leader, I was a follower. But once I began playing sports, and I got good at my craft, I then chose to lead because I wanted to, I wanted to drive the outcome. I didn't want someone else to drive the outcome, I wanted to be the driver of the outcome. That was the beginning of my being forged into being a leader, being the captain on the teams that I was playing on because I wanted to drive the outcome. Then going into the military, going to officer training school and going, the, those things forged me into a leader. But from day one, I wasn't a leader. I, I couldn't say as a child that I always led the, you know, the games mm -hmm. and I was always, no, I was, okay, that's what we're gonna do. All right, yeah, I'm going with the guys and we're gonna go do this, right? I just sort of followed along. So I think that they are crafted and forged over time, right? Uh, through life situations, yeah. through through all sorts of different things that come at them in different ways, right? Whether it's you know personal relationships, professional relationships. I think over time you begin to build your leadership chops. And some people are never destined to be leaders, like. And so let's be very clear. So there are some people who it's just not them. It's not in their nature. It's not in their demeanor, and they will never succeed at being a leader because it's not innate to who they are. Right, um, and it's not saying that uh, that's a bad thing, right? Some leaders need to have followers as well, right? Yeah. So, um, but I do think that they are forged and shaped over time. Julian, you want to reframe your answer at all, or you want to stick with what you? No. What you so, I think everyone is born with an innate set of leadership capabilities. Yeah. However, yeah. For me, leadership starts with the word love, which we don't like to use in business a lot. Yep. It goes beyond management, it goes to belief. You know, like, like now I work with a CEO who's very inspirational, he's very strategic. When he talks, and when he talks about what we do and the problems we solve, I love hearing that. I wanna be involved with that. And so, true leadership skills though, where's the humility? That's a, usually a learned trait. Yeah. Uh, where's the care? for others, where you really have concern for others and not just for yourself. Again, yeah. those are learned traits, usually by your parents in childhood or as you started your life through the hard knocks of life, especially when things get hard, that's when we are really forced. And all those things come together at some point where you're in a leadership position. But I think in every role that we take, we have to strive to be some level of a leader. But leadership to me goes straight after passion. And again, a word we don't like to use in business, but love. All right, I love and appreciate all those answers. Uh, for the final question, what's on the horizon for Cyversity? Well, I'm really excited for Cyversity because we have a new chairman and a new president. Yes. That's going to be named, well, they've been named already. They've been named already. And they're sitting yep. at the table. sitting at the table, yes. I was going to let y'all put the guy out of the bag, but I, I'm excited for where we're going, right? Um, I am very thankful to both of you for raising your hands to jump into these roles, right? Thank and you. Julie and I have been, you know, in our roles for quite some time, and but we we are happy for the new blood and the new the new ideas and the new uh, the new things that you guys are bringing to the table of where this organization can go. So um, we've got a lot that we're going to accomplish in 2023, and we've got a lot more that we're going to accomplish in 2024 with you guys' leadership. Excellent. Yeah. Ooh. We got a lot. We got a lot that we're working on. A lot of ground to cover, right? Yeah, we've yeah. we've been doing some really amazing things. You know, many of our engaged seminars where we're bringing, you know, you know, kind of industry titans to share with our membership. Um, we've got an ambassadors program where we're where people can see more of this leadership. That where it's not just the we're sitting on diversity panels, but we are security practitioners at the end of the day. And you just need to see that there are different perspectives. So right. we're driving more of that. You know, for me, you know, I'm a, a little bit of a take it over and let's go, you know, yeah. and, I, and I really want to, I want to lead that. You know, I think we want to do more in the way of challenging the, uh, the industry. And for me, here in the last couple of months, it's been more of this 
challenging the suppliers mm -hmm. that provide services into our cybersecurity teams. Again, when I sit as a CISO and have vendors pitch to me, oftentimes there is no diversity in the room from the vendors. So again, for me, when I think about the, um, am I partnering with someone who is thinking ahead of me in this one space, that they're considering new challenges and the like. Right. I need to know this. They've got different thinkers in the room as well. That's exactly right. So that's right. the sales teams, that's the sales yeah. engineers, that's the you know the support people in the back end. I want to see more diversity there, and diversity Impacting is going to drive the entire some of that. ecosystem. The entire ecosystem is what we want yeah. to start focusing in on. Um, I think also, you know, we're going to continue to train, right? right. We're going to partner with individual uh, organizations that do training well. Um, that they are going to help us grow that talent again so we have that competency built in. Mm -hmm. We can say yes. Absolutely. Yes, this person was working at Macy's before, but they are SAN certified or they're right. trained and they're at this level that, um, that we would expect. And in five years, they'll have their CISSP. <laughs> we can do all of those things. But the, I think the target here for us is to impact the entire ecosystem of cybersecurity, not just you know, getting people into entry-level jobs. We want to support um, senior leaders getting into board positions. We want to support um, more diversity into venture capitalists um, and partnering with angel investors and helping yeah. grow new technology that comes into our industry. Amen. And we just want to have that greater impact. So that's what yeah. I see for cybersecurity. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I will round out the, the comments by simply saying that we have a responsibility to provide value to our members, Absolutely. in other words, to ensure that they get out of their cybersecurity membership the things that we all want, which is the ability to network, enrich our career opportunities, but also to learn from one another and be exposed to opportunities so that your career can progress. And then really to um, get hyper-focused on identifying our corporate support in the way of sponsorships. Uh, you know, now is the time, I think, for these corporations to really kind of put their money where their mouth is. They've been talking for a long time about the subject of diversity, yep. and Cyversity uh, has a proven track record yep. of bringing folks to the table and then ultimately helping them to matriculate Absolutely. their career. So we want to we want to continue yeah. to double down on that. And yep. we want to partner with them. Right. So if there are any organizations who are stuck and they don't know how to even start yeah. that Absolutely. journey, right. we Absolutely. are building custom programs right. and we're helping them along that journey. So we want to be there as well. Awesome. Wonderful conversation. Thank Excellent. you. Thank Julian you. Waits, Larry Whiteside Jr., Sharon Burgess. Appreciate you guys joining us for this episode of the Leadership Student Podcast, and we'll see you next time.